0: Welcome back to Mama Mystery. I am your host, Kelly.
1: And I am your co-host, Austin.
0: Today, you might hear a little booger whistle, and I would just like to point out that it's not mine. Okay. So, before we get started, we're going to shout out some Patreons. Are you ready? Let's go. Kimmy Thompson. Oh, yeah. Lauren Guidry. Oh, yeah. Kinsley Adams. Mm-hmm. Heather Foshi Foshi And Kelsey Huffer.
1: Well, hell yes. What up,
0: what up? Stickers are going to be going out this week. And the then stickers I'll...
1: are cool. I saw them.
0: Do you like them? Yeah,
1: they're pretty cool. Yeah. You didn't put Mama Mystery on them, which ticks me off. but yeah, Oh, they're cool. shoot.
0: Darn it. I forgot.
1: You say that every time.
0: Okay, don't yell. It's not their fault. So, anyway, they're going out um, this week, and that will include last month's also. So, if you were a paying Patreon last month, you'll get six stickers. And oh, that. if you just started this month, you'll get three. So and they're awesome. So anyway, thank you very much, Patreons. I appreciate you very much. Word. So today we are talking about the leaf killer, which I think is such a crappy name. We gotta come up with something better. Maybe by the end of this episode you can have a better suggestion for what the name of this is. You guy named
1: it be. the leaf killer?
0: No, that's just like what his moniker is. Okay. I don't know, I don't really get it. Let's roll. All right. So we're gonna dive on in. Let's flow. It's November 10th of 2010, and Tina Herman was supposed to be at work for her shift at the Dairy Queen in Mount Vernon, Ohio. This is the second day of work that she has missed, and this was totally uncharacteristic of her. She has always been known as a very dependable, responsible employee. She loved coming to work. She loved her coworkers. And her manager, Valerie Haythorn, has been trying to call her, but she's not getting any answers. So she decides to drive to her house to figure out what the heck is going on. Tina Herman is a mother to 11-year-old Cody and 13-year-old Sarah. Tina is an amazing, very involved mother. She loved planting sunflowers and collecting dolphin figurines. She worked very hard. She enjoyed the simple life. She took great care of her kids. Her son Cody was a fifth grader at the time who loved sports and especially baseball. And Sarah was a very good student and she seemed kind of shy, but still great student, great kid. Valerie goes to Tina's house to see if she can figure out what is going on. And when nobody answers the door, she goes around the back and she lets herself in through a window that was unlocked in the back of the house. So she gets into the house, she walks into the kitchen, and there's grocery bags with fresh meat in them, as if Tina probably just literally got home from the store, set the bags on the ground before unloading them, but they were left there. Mm -hmm. Not seeing Tina, Valerie continues her way through the house, and that's when she sees this huge reddish-black blood stain on the living room floor with drag marks leading from the stain into the hallways.
1: Oh, that's pretty creepy
0: in a bathroom off the hallway, there are more blood trails leading into the bathroom that are coming from bedrooms of the house. So like all these blood trails are coming from every room, but all leading to the bathroom. She goes into the bathroom and she sees a bathtub completely covered in blood. Blood is smeared all over the porcelain tub. It's soaked into the shower curtain. It's all over the floor. There's also huge jugs of oil that someone clearly tried pouring onto the carpet, and specifically onto the bloodstains. Probably in an attempt to start a fire, to cover up some evidence. Something horrible has obviously happened here.
1: And she has huge balls walking around this house with the bloodstained carpets.
0: Well, Probably
1: not packing heat.
0: No, and she didn't see anyone in the house. She didn't see Tina. She didn't see any kind of intruder, nothing. She runs out of the house and calls 911 and tells them what's going on. I'm not
1: walking through that house without a heater. I'm scared.
0: Can you tell me what a heater is? A gun? Yeah,
1: a gun with one in the pipe, all right?
0: Oh, okay. Just one?
1: Maybe, yeah, one in the pipe, but several in the clip.
0: Oh, okay. I'm learning a lot. So... Investigators call the kids' school to see if they can find any information on where the kids are, and the school tells them that the kids haven't been to school in two days. In their investigation, they also discovered that Tina's best friend, Stephanie Sprang, was also unaccounted for, and nobody had heard from her in a couple days either. Stephanie only lived three doors down from Tina, but the day they went missing, I guess they were supposed to go apartment hunting for Tina, so we assume they were together at the time investigators start off with people closest to tina so they bring in her ex-husband who is also the father of her two kids cody and sarah he tells investigators that he has an alibi that he's super stressed about everything going on and just has this really bad feeling that something is wrong with his kids of course right why wouldn't you right and after his interview he's ruled out as a suspect and they bring in tina's live-in boyfriend greg borders What's baffling is that these two lived together, but it wasn't Greg that discovered the blood in the house. It was her best friend, even though, well, I guess one of her best friends and co-worker, even though these two were living together. It's unknown whether he was ever at the house at any point between the day they went missing and the day Valerie came over and discovered all the blood, but Tina's close friends have said that Greg and Tina had a very volatile relationship and that Tina was actually preparing to leave Greg and move out, which is why they were going to go apartment hunting.
1: Eyes on Greg.
0: So I guess it's plausible that he wasn't there if they were in the process of separating, but it's not a good look. Red flags everywhere.
1: Do you know the definition of plausible?
0: Yes. it's It seems possible to come up with that explanation. That That's... That's a very possible event that could have happened.
1: So, why did we ever create that word when we could just say possible? I'm moving on. <laughs> so That's rude. I have a valid point. <laughs> like, it's possible and it's plausible. Why do we say plausible?
0: Because they mean the same thing. And if you're not an idiot, you know what they both mean. So, it doesn't My matter. My point was
1: to prove that that's a stupid word.
0: No, there's two words for a lot of things. Just shh. We're moving on.
1: We're moving on.
0: So, by that Saturday, it's now been three days since Tina, Cody, Sarah, and Tina's best friend Stephanie went missing. Police are scouring the house for any possible clues, and they find a shopping bag in Tina's garage that contained two tarps and a roll of heavy-duty trash bags. So, investigators go to the store where the items were purchased to see if they can bring up any security camera footage or receipt information for those items, and sure enough, They're able to see a man purchasing these items and leaving the store in a Toyota Yaris.
1: A couple days before?
0: I don't know if it was the day of or if it was the day before.
1: Bet it was Greg.
0: So they go to their vehicle registry database and look up that make of vehicles. And on the first page of their search, they find an owner of a Yaris named Matthew Hoffman, who fit the description of the man making the purchase in the video. So Matthew Hoffman was working. Well, he was actually unemployed, but he was a tree trimmer and he had this interesting criminal criminal record that included a home invasion in Colorado Springs, where he tried setting the home on fire to cover up any evidence. So he was actually convicted of that crime and he was sentenced to eight years for that. So by the next day, police obtain a search warrant for Matthew's house and they come up in the front door They find Matthew asleep on a mattress in the living room, and as they make their way into the house, they're amazed to find tons of leaves, Austin. In one room next to the entrance, what should probably be a dining room, it's an enormous pile of leaves, like what you would find in somebody's yard. It's a huge pile. It's taking up the entire space. From wall to wall, it's probably a few feet high, all leaves.
1: Weird.
0: So they make their way through the house and they find along the walls are shopping bags full of leaves. I have to show you a what? picture of this. And I'm going to put this on our Mama Mystery Instagram page so you can view it there too. But What?
1: This is not what I was expecting. Yeah. They're, like, neatly organized in bags.
0: Yeah. They're neatly secured to the wall. Like, how do you even explain that? It looks like there's a bunch of pillows attached to the wall, just neatly stacked in rows and columns. And Kmart bags and stuff. What the hell? And And there's a
1: toilet there. (laughs) No, this is the bathroom.
0: Is that the bathroom? Yeah, it looks like the bathroom. And, like, multiple rooms... We're covered in these leaves, Austin. This is
1: chaos. It's like makes up the whole, like until you see the picture, I'll just say it literally looks like, like it makes up like each bag of leaves looks almost like a cinder block on the wall, making up a cinder block wall.
0: Yeah, I could see how it kind of resembles like the pattern like a of a cinder block, yeah. cinder block wall. Yeah, that
1: is weird. They're like layered over each other.
0: Mm-hmm. It almost looks like it was supposed to be like insulation, but like, why? Yes. What is the purpose? And all I could think when I was looking at these pictures was, oh my god, all the bugs, all the bugs that are probably in those leaves. That is so strange. And he's just like living in a leaf house it's and chilling in there. Like that has to probably smell bad. Like, what? It's okay, just it makes on, no I'm sense.
1: Curious as heck.
0: So, yeah. Anyway, they have. You then, get me
1: curious about true crime stories. I could care less about this stuff, but you have me curious now.
0: Well, good. That's the point. So, anyway, as they're making their way through the house, they come upon a dresser that is blocking a door. So, they move the dresser aside and they open the door to find that it leads to the basement. So, they make their way down into the basement, and that is when they find 13 year old Sarah, and oh. she is alive
1: okay, well, there's a silver lining. First of all, I thought you were going to say you found more leaves. Then when you said that, I was like, shit. And then you said alive, so there's at least a silver lining. What the heck?
0: She's laying on top of a huge pile of leaves and a blanket, and she's tied up and bound with duct tape. She's got jeans on, but he fashioned, like, a diaper out of a out of a shopping bag to, like, put, a, put around her. She's got a sweatshirt on, but she's also got, like, Work gloves on, and then around the work gloves is just mounds of duct tape. It almost looks like she's wearing boxing gloves of duct tape. She's gagged, but she's alive. So at this point, there's... 13 years old. 13. Oh, my goodness. At this point, there's still no sign of Cody, Tina, or Stephanie. But Sarah tells investigators that on Wednesday, November 10th, she and her brother had just come home from school and they came in the front door to find blood on the floor of the living room. So she ran into her room and hid there, hearing commotion in the bathroom and terrified to make any sounds. She started to call 911 but then realized if he caught her calling 911, he might kill her. So she had dialed 911 on her phone but never hit the send button to complete the call. The intruder came into her room to take her with him and assured her that everything would be okay, that nobody was dead. He bound her up and sat her in the kitchen, and she listened as he killed her little brother and even their family dog, because the dog wouldn't stop barking. Then he put her in the back of Stephanie's Jeep, and at the time, I don't think she knew this, but she found out later that he had placed her on top of their dead bodies that were in trash bags, all in the back of the Jeep. And then he took her to his house where he tortured her for four days. He sexually assaulted her. And while she was there, tried forcing her to eat rotten food, dead squirrels, which
1: what a weirdo.
0: really, yeah, an odd detail, but his neighbors recalled after all of this, that he would kill squirrels and then barbecue them and eat them like, they knew that about him, like which, I mean, I don't know. Like maybe I, don't know. I'm trying I don't care not how you judge. spin it.
1: It's weird. Like if you and, eat yeah. squirrels right now, if you kill squirrels and barbecue them, like you're come weird. on,
0: come on. We don't need to be eating squirrels, guys. Come on. But anyway, that's yeah, just an odd detail. He tried giving her cereal with rotten milk, and he just sat her up in this like makeshift little dungeon with movies. She and watched. Leaves. And leaves. And leaves on a huge pile of leaves that he insisted, tried to convince her that the leaves were there to make her bed more comfortable. Because why use a mattress if you can just layer on leaves? Like, none of it makes sense. None of it does.
1: Mental problems. Yes. As if you didn't know already from taking her, like, this is more mental problems.
0: Right. So the night before this disappearance and the murders... Matthew Hoffman had been spending the night in the woods when he randomly decided to burglarize this house. So he broke in and he was interrupted when Tina and Stephanie came in the front door. So I've heard different reports about this, but I think the one that makes probably the most sense is that Tina had come home from the store and interrupted him in the progress or in the process of burglarizing her house. So that explains why she had just set the bags down. Mm -hmm. I think Stephanie was probably meeting her at the house so they could go apartment shopping. And he had already attacked Tina at this point and then probably attacked Stephanie soon after because he can't leave a witness behind, I guess, is probably his train of thought. Mm -hmm. And then Cody and Sarah show up after they had already been attacked. And so he attacked them too. So that's, I think, the most plausible series of events.
1: Sounds possible.
0: I feel like they were literally in the wrong place at the wrong time Mm -hmm. with an evil person. And there's been talk about how he planned this because it it showed him buying a knife online, the same knife he used to kill them, like within that week before, and that maybe he was infatuated with young Sarah. Um, But we don't know that for sure. That's just a strong assumption. Mm -hmm. So anyway, like I said, Sarah and Cody arrived home from school as Matthew was trying to clean up the mess he made. And so now we have Sarah, but where are Tina, Cody, and Stephanie? So police bring in Matthew Hoffman. And during the first interrogation, he completely refuses to speak. He does not say a word to investigators. He just stares at his handcuffed wrists. He almost looks like he's comatose, like he is just not there. Mm -hmm. Three and a half hours go by. Investigators are relentless. They're not giving up. They will sit there for as long as it takes for Matthew to either talk or request a lawyer. And finally, he motions that his heart is broken. He almost does this type of sign language. He like motions with a fist towards his heart or his chest, and then does this motion like he's breaking a stick. So he's like not saying words. He's just trying to tell them that his heart is broken. And it's not much. But he's finally starting to kind of crack a little bit from this, like, catatonic state that he's been in for three and a half hours. So they start probing more about Sarah. Since Sarah is the only living victim that they've found, they're unsure of where the others are. But Sarah's alive, and they start focusing on the fact that he must have cared about her at least a little bit if he chose to keep her alive, right? Right. So they talk more about Sarah. They tell him she's going to be okay. They even lie and say that she's worried about this whole situation and what's going to happen and in an attempt to get him to break, right? And he does. Finally, he comes out and says, quote, I knew I must have done something wrong. I found her in my house. She was tied up, so I took care of her.
1: Oh, yeah. Oh, my goodness.
0: Yeah. In a bizarre roundabout confession, he tells investigators that she told him he did this. So he figured he must have done it, but was trying to put the pieces together and figure out exactly what happened because he didn't remember anything from Wednesday, or at least that's what he claimed. God,
1: you just want to slap him around.
0: Right, because it's like, dude. You're full of shit. You're full of shit. Just take ownership. You're done for. She's been found. You're screwed. There's a ton of evidence in the house. Just come... Man up. Like, stop being such a coward. I, I don't think I would make it as a good interrogator because I would just get, get violent.
1: Yeah, get pissed and break and... Uh. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So, but I mean, that's why I'm not doing it. So Monday, November 15th, Matthew is brought back in for another round of questioning. And I watched an episode on um, A&E, and it's called Interrogation Raw. It's called Lost in the Leaves, and they show you a lot of like the interrogation footage. And it's fascinating how the investigators meticulously set up the interrogation, paying attention to every detail from the way that the chairs are arranged in the room, to bringing in a female investigator with her hair in a ponytail in an attempt to kind of make her look young. So maybe it prompts some sort of reaction from Matthew since obviously he had like an affinity towards this young girl.
1: That's super interesting. So there's all the psychology behind it.
0: Yeah. Like uh, the first interrogation, they were sitting between two tables. Like he was sitting against the wall, then there was a table, and a detective was sitting behind the table. This time they moved the table against the wall and had the two chairs just in the corner kind of facing each other. So it kind of opened it up more. It felt like there was less of a blockade. Mm -hmm. So during this interrogation, and then, of course, they, they changed the detective from a male to a female. So this time, it's the female investigator, and he tells her that he doesn't know who the other people were, that he's being grilled about the day before. And even though he's talking to her, he's still not really revealing anything about where the other three are. He's only admitting that he had Sarah in the basement, but he's not admitting how she got there or what he did to her while she was there. This interrogation is much like a chess game, carefully strategizing each question after the next. So after 10 hours, he requests to go back to his cell and the officers grant that request. The next day, Tina, Stephanie and Cody have now been missing for six days Time is running out because soon Matthew is going to have his first court appearance where he'll be appointed a lawyer. So they need to get as much information out of him as they can before a lawyer advises him to do otherwise, right? Mm -hmm. So the investigators turn up the pressure and they start getting sterner with him. There's no more coddling, no more bullshit. They tell him he knows what happened and he needs to just come out and say it and stop stringing them along and wasting their time. That there's family suffering, and then there's a knock on the door, and it's an officer telling them the interview is over because the Knox County prosecutor ordered Matthew to speak with a public defender, which automatically ends the interrogation. Can you imagine the stress of those investigators having put three days into these interrogations, trying to figure out where these other three missing people are, to have it just, boom, stop, done? Yeah. No warning, just, it, you're done. Well, two days later, it's announced that Matthew Hoffman has accepted a plea deal. The prosecutor agreed to take the death penalty off the table if he would confess, which he does, to murdering Tina, Cody, and Stephanie. In a 10-page letter, he detailed exactly what happened that day, how he killed... Tina, Cody, and Stephanie, and then placed their bodies in trash bags and then put those bags into a hollowed-out tree.
1: What a sickening thing you'd have to even read. Mm
0: -hmm. You know
1: what I mean? Like, to be the prosecutor, whoever you are, and have to go read this 10-page thing that's just gut-wrenching and horrible.
0: Yeah, and the, the details, the way he writes it, it's like so nonchalant. He's like, I just assumed it was probably Sarah's room because of the stuff that was in there, and here's what I did to her mom, and... It's just going through every little detail. So he agreed to tell investigators exactly where they were if they just promised not to cut down the tree. His obsession with trees and leaves was so great that his biggest concern was if they were going to cut that tree down. Never mind the human lives he took. God forbid we cut this fucking tree down. So the prosecutor agreed and told him, oh, sure, we won't cut the tree down, just tell us where they are. So Matthew told them, authorities go out, they find them there, sure enough, they recover the bodies, and they cut that fucking tree down. I hope
1: they made him watch.
0: I hope they did, too. I hope they
1: strapped him to the top branch and, like, made him...
0: I mean, ideally, they would have just hung him from it, but I feel like that would be too easy him. It would be too much of a pleasure, too much of an honor for him to be hung from a tree. What a weirdo. So after accepting his plea deal, he pleaded guilty to 10 felonies, and he was sentenced to life in prison without the chance of parole. Sarah has since gone on the Today Show and Dr. Phil to talk about her experience and her bravery Together with her father, they created a foundation called the Healing Hearts Memorial Fund in honor of Tina, Cody, and Stephanie, and it was created to help families affected by violent crimes. So I watched some of these interviews that, like, especially hers on Dr. Phil, Austin, it is gut-wrenching to watch her try to speak. Like, she still looks like she's just terrified. And Mm -hmm. granted, these, these interviews happened about 10 years ago, but... I'm sure she's come a long way since then, or at least I pray she has, but to see this poor girl and imagine and know what she's been through, like it's unimaginable, 13 Mm -hmm. years old. And she's like, during the interview, she's very shy. She's very short. Her answers are very short. She's like holding back tears, trying not to break down. It's, it's actually one of the most painful interviews I've ever seen. Um, it is on YouTube If anyone wants to, like, watch it to hear more about her story, but also to be, I guess, um, like, inspired by her story and her strength and her courage. But, man, it's a doozy.
1: Yeah, I can't even imagine. I I can't imagine all these stories. Like, being on the end where you have to go on and talk about it, Mm -hmm. or you choose to, Mm -hmm. it's just
0: wild. Yeah, I can't either. And she does mention that she wanted to talk about it to... Get through it to help other people, to inspire other people to be Which brave. Is cool. Yeah,
1: very cool. Like very respectable.
0: Right, and um, I don't know what she's up to now. I didn't probe. Um, I didn't like try to find her or anything like that. But I hope that she's doing well.
1: I feel like if you can like speak about the shit in your life, though, in the dark times, other people can relate and somehow like harness some power from that. And
0: for sure, I think it's important to be vulnerable sometimes. In the hopes that maybe someone who is also vulnerable but maybe more shy Mm -hmm. feels like they can relate, and then they're not alone.
1: Hundred percent.
0: Yeah, especially if you have a voice where a lot of people are listening, Mm -hmm. it's important to like be authentic. There's Mm -hmm. so many people out here who are inauthentic and just wasting everybody's time.
1: Yeah.
0: Don't be like that.
1: Good job, Kelly. All right. Well, I don't have a better name for it. That was
0: the leaf killer. I mean, he's not a leaf killer, but I don't know
1: the leaf moron. Yeah. Mama.
0: Oh wait, I want to thank everyone who's been leaving reviews because we've been getting reviews oh, yeah, we have. daily.
1: And Kelly sends them to me in the mornings. They're so
0: good. They're awesome. Thank you so much for sending or for for writing reviews. I appreciate it so much. Um it does not go unnoticed. I read every single one. I appreciate them so much. It helps us get seen by other um, true crime enthusiasts that might want to find our channel. So thank you so much.
1: And keep your eyes out for Kelly's badass TikTok she's doing now.
0: Oh, yeah. I'm on TikTok. And if you
1: would, share them because it helps <laughs> yeah. it helps spread the show.
0: Yeah. So. Thank you guys so much.
1: Thank you all. Mama. Mister.